0: Welcome to episode number 13 of the Sprinkler Nerd Show. I'm Andy Humphrey, host of the show. And on today's episode, we will be speaking with Nate Griswold of Inhabitect, a green roof company located here in Traverse City, Michigan. Nate has an extensive background in the green roof industry. I may even go as far as to call Nate one of the green roof OGs, one of the pioneers back in the early days of the industry industry. When Nate was working for American Hydrotech, he covered almost all of the U.S., has been on hundreds or even thousands of green roof tops. He's worked with professionals nationwide, and he just really understands everything about the industry. And again, like I said before, my intent with this show is to bring different types of content to you all. One piece, which is fast growing, especially for us irrigators, is irrigating rooftops. So in episode one here with our discussion with Nate, we're going to talk mostly about green roofs, everything about green roofs, the types of green roofs, why green roofs exist, the value of them. And then in episode number two, we will discuss specifically irrigation. So I hope you enjoy this topic of green roofs with Nate Griswold, and I look forward to bringing you future green roof content. So with that, let's jump right in. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Nate, welcome to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. Really glad to have you on today.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: This is something that I've been looking forward to for a number of reasons. I think primarily because you and I have very similar backgrounds and we won't go completely into the backgrounds, but you're one of the people that I've known a very long time in this industry. And I think at some point here, we'll be able to discuss sort of how we met as well as you are a leader in the green roof industry. And one of the things that I am attempting to do with this podcast is to have different content segments or categories and green roof is one of them. And so I'm really just kind of honored to have you help me kick off my first topic on green roofs. So yeah, man, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I was trying to add up how long we've known each other and we can try to figure that out as we talk here, but it's definitely over a decade. And I'm happy to help you out here, and um, I think this is a great way for everyone to learn about vegetated roofs and green roofs and other forms of green infrastructure. I'm all about making sure people understand what I do.
0: Perfect. So let's just start with, tell us who you are, the name of your company, where you're located, and then you can maybe start into the story of how you got into the green roof business.
1: Sure. My name is Nathan Griswold. I'm the owner of Inhabitect LLC out of Traverse City, Michigan. I was born and raised here in Traverse City, and I recently came back and started Inhabitect in 2013. My background is varied. It started here locally, and from a very young age, I was interested in horticulture and ecology and biology. Going all the way back to High school, I was focusing on landscape oriented classes. I went on to the local college here, Northwest Michigan College, got a degree in plant science as well as a landscape nursery degree from Michigan State in that time, and I wasn't really ready to start working. So I moved on to landscape architecture at Michigan State University, graduated from there, and I was lucky enough at that time to be exposed to some of the earliest green roof research that was going on in North America. So at that time, I inserted myself into that arena, I guess, and started to speak with the people doing that research and started showing up at the conferences they are putting on at the infants of the industry in North Mm -hmm. America.
0: And what year was that just approximately? What year?
1: 2003. Okay. So post-graduation, I really, really wanted to work in the green roof industry, and I was lucky enough after many, many calls to find my way to work in Chicago with the industry leader at that time, the market share leader, uh, American Hydrotech. They were doing the biggest and the best projects at that time, and I found myself on their green roof or garden roof team, and that I was number two. I was their number two hire in that department. That was in 2005. And from there, I was lucky enough to really just ride the wave of the growth of green roofs in the country, Mm -hmm. really in this part of the world. At that time, there was a pretty small market share in general, Mm -hmm. and Hydrotech was involved in most of them. And being the number two higher, I was able to get into the offices of the designers, the architects and engineers and landscape architects. You know, we're out there doing these things and rode that wave, the growth of the industry. Mm -hmm. I met the very first innovators in the country at those early events. And to this day, they're my friends. Most of us are still there. And I have played a role in over a thousand projects is my estimate. In that eight years that I spent at Hydrotech, and then mm-hmm. the seven years that I've run in Habitat. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, all scales too. So I was really lucky to see that. And um, as a young professional, really got exposed to some very famous individuals that are designing the biggest and baddest structures in the region, for sure. So
0: I'm thinking we met in 2006 because that's the year that I started working for Netafim. Mm-hmm. And so I think we met in the summer of 2006. And I do remember you and one other gentleman, don't remember his name. Steve. Steve, Steve Striker. Yep. Okay. Steve. And, and of course, you know, Netafim being a drip manufacturer was and still is, you know, heavily utilized on many green roofs. But in 2006, things were very new. What I remember most though, is I believe that we first caught up on the phone and we were like, holy shit, man, you live in Traverse City? Dude, I'm from Traverse City, is what
1: you're thinking. You're like, we got to meet. I remember that, uh, being jealous of you, (laughs) that you're living in my hometown and working in Chicago.
0: And I think I came to your office. We did the quick office thing with Steve and talked business for a few minutes. And then you were like, let's get out of here, man. There's a bar like right around the corner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Chicago's famous for that. Many bars, many places to have beverages. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so 2006, so 14 years,
1: and uh, wow, that's a good chunk of a career. Yeah,
0: so tell us about in those early days. I think anytime there's a new product, let's call a green roof a product, or a new market, and it's new, you have early adapters that jump right in and think this is great, and then you have the other 99% that maybe think, Nate, you're freaking crazy, man. Well, I'm not putting the green roof on my building. Are you nuts? Right. Like, what were people thinking at that
1: time? At that time, it was much harder to get these to actually make it through the construction phase. To start, many architects and landscape architects and engineers didn't understand what they were or how they worked or what their benefits were. So, one, you had to get over that hurdle to explain and educate the design community in what this technology was and try to prove the triple bottom line benefits that they provide, Hmm. economic Social and environmental benefits come with this technology. Unlike any other infrastructure that's available out there, green infrastructure offers that, especially green roofs. So, a big part of what I did is help HydroTech and our sales force educate our customers, the designers, but also the contractors, the owners, the municipalities from the very early days. Tell them what it was, and we had to fight to get them on the job. Then we had to organize everything through the bidding process. And I'm sure you're aware, commercial bidding on these large high-rise projects is crazy. And there's so many chances for something like this to get value engineered off the building, chopped off the budget so they can make their ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. Deliver that building at X price. So green roofs were getting cut left and right, but my job was to keep them on there and make sure they got put in correctly and give the support to the design professionals, the general contractors from the early days to make sure that these all went in as planned. Okay. Fast forward to today, every single project, every major project out there, be it a condo building, multi-unit residential townhome or any type of commercial municipal or university buildings, almost every single one out there at least considers rooftop space. Most of them now, there's an evolution from just being green roofs, but also to be living spaces or places to congregate. Mm. There's one here in Traverse City I'm working on. It's a bank and they may have an entertainment space on the roof with a putting green. So, (laughs) You know, now people are thinking out of the box and it's this unused dimension of a project site. So Mm it's getting easier to have people accept the technology, but now that means there's a lot more competition because in that time, since I joined Hydratech, the industry's changed and there is tenfold as many people that are trying to stick their hand in the same cookie jar. So there's 10x
0: the number of people in the industry, but there may not be 10x the number of projects. More competition grew
1: faster than the market? It's hard to say because now that I'm back in Traverse City, I don't have a pulse on the whole nation as much as I did with HydroTech. But I know that there's a lot of people doing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. So there definitely is opportunity there. There's still those... Hanger-ons in the industry that, you know, are there and they provide one product or one service, and that's great. But there are full service firms from design through construction and maintenance, similar to Inhabitact. You know, we try to be there from top to bottom to make sure these things are done right. There's a lot of opportunity in the industry, and it's still growing because there's so many facets out there, one being maintenance. In 2005, nobody talked about maintenance. Right. <laughs> they plant the green roofs and get out of there because they were so excited to sell a green roof. They didn't want to also tell the owner that, oh, and you have to pay X amount of money per year to take care of this thing. And those construction
0: companies may not have had those divisions in place to even know where to begin with that.
1: Right. I was thinking this morning of like, what is some of the biggest evolutions of the market in the last 15 years? And that's one of them now there's companies in larger municipalities that are focused 100% on maintenance that's all they do which is great for a company like mine we try to do the maintenance and tie it into the install because i believe that gives a good service to the owner because we understand where all the irrigation lines are, Mm -hmm. where all the heads may be, you know, where the utilities are running through the electrical lines going to the lit bollards that are on the patio, you know? So those are reasons that it benefits the owner to hire the original installer. I
0: guess you could say this about any new construction project. If you are going to maintain it, then you're going to sort of live up to your own construction work. Right. So if you're going to install it and walk away, then may or may not be installed to the same quality standard that if you had to maintain it yourself, you're not going to go back to the owner and say, hey, I've got all these repairs. So sorry that my crew last year didn't do such a good job. And now I'm going to charge you on the maintenance side.
1: That's a great point. Yeah. So there's definitely some quality control measures that you're looking at if you're going to be there for the next two to four years, you know. Another growth in the industry is also roofers that traditionally didn't want to become quote-unquote landscapers. In the last 15 years, there's many roofing companies and waterproofing companies that now have green roofing divisions. So they saw an opportunity to where they used to be subcontracting that work out to a company like myself. They'd put the waterproofing in and carry the contract with a green roof company as a sub. Yes. They would be the prime for the whole pack. But now there's many that have created a whole division for green roof alone. You know, that's unique as well, or I guess unique in the way of an evolution of a market. Mm-hmm. And if I could going back to the maintenance thing real quick, still, even though the industry is very much pro maintenance, there's still some organizations out there that will skip that part of the story to sell a green roof. Unfortunately. And to me, that it really discredits, one, their level of professionalism. Um, You should tell your clients the whole story if you're selling them something. But also, it creates a possibility of having a failed green roof. And a failed green roof is something that, from an industry standpoint, gives the whole industry a black eye. I can see that. Yeah, and that's where irrigation and sprinklers – could help create a successful green roof if properly done to where there's arguments out there is irrigation a requirement on green roofs and why not just let it be natural. And you know, there's cases where I've seen very successful roofs without irrigation, but it's really nice to have it there. Mm -hmm. And the maintenance is in general, I will sort of self promote here and say that, you know, I was one of the people in the industry pushing for maintenance. Mm -hmm. I was pushing Hydrotech to create a maintenance program and the importance of it, pushing the trade association, Green roofs for Healthy Cities to support this and talk about this at their events and was actually there and sat on the maintenance committee for the industry and helped create standards. And many manufacturers, including Hydrotech, have adopted some form of the standards that are out there. And now it's written into the spec. So, fantastic. yeah, so there's a lot of channels like that that have developed in the last, mm-hmm. you know, 15 years since we first met there in a high rise in Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> That's one of them.
0: So I consider myself someone who understands the differences between the different types of green roofs. But I think that perhaps a lot of our listeners may hear the word green roof. And it is a very generalized name for green infrastructure on a building. But I think it could be helpful to maybe uncover and explain the different types of green roofs. Yeah. So you've got sedums to putting surfaces and everything in between. Yeah. So can we
1: talk about that? Yes. And again, just like many things in this industry, there's different terms that are used by some professionals. And I'll start by saying in some areas, a green roof is called a living roof or an eco roof or a garden roof. Or a live roof. Huh. You know, there's many different names, and some of those are trade names. Or are they
0: intellectual property? Yeah, like trademarks. Like live yeah. roof, that's a brand.
1: Right. So is garden roof. That's
0: Hydrotech. brand. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So Garden Roof is a definition for what HydroTech provides. There's single source provider. Of waterproofing and green roofing products. So that is something that's important to understand. Um, It's sort of like Q-tips or Kleenex. That's brand names. So there's definitely brand names out there and the general term used to define what a green roof is is something that I worked at with ASTM. Do you work with ASTM? I don't personally work with ASTM,
0: but I understand the concept behind it.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's a testing standard, basically an organization that helps create and define testing standards for certain industries. So, that's something I worked on for a very long time. While at Hydrotech, I spent eight years of going to, what was it, every six months we would meet around the country and spend three hours talking about green roof standards and try to deliver something to the industry. Mm -hmm. And one of those was defining what a green roof was, (laughs) It took us I think it was 6 years to define what a green roof was. <laughs> so things were moving very very slowly, but you know we defined it as basically what it says is a vegetated surface over a waterproof structure. So that is something to understand that a green roof is something that is creating a vegetated surface over occupied or unoccupied surface below, but that surface has to be waterproofed to be considered a green roof. So with that, there's a few main definitions of green roofs. Extensive is your shallow green roof. That's going to be the lightest weight product. It can be anywhere as shallow, in my experience, as two inches of growth media up to about four inches of depth. And the reason that that's cut off there is because extensive is traditionally, like you had mentioned, sedum plants and other grasses and forbs and ground covers that have shallower root systems. So those roofs are your lightweight roofs. They're the most common roof. Most square footage numbers you'll see for the industry are from extensive, shallow rooftops.
0: What would you say on an extensive, I like the term you used earlier, trying to find it in my notes here. It was a um, triple...
1: triple bottom line benefits.
0: Yeah. So what's the triple line bottom line benefit for
1: extensive? So you have your triple bottom line benefits and then you have categories in both the public and the private sector. You have a column for triple bottom line in both public and private. Okay. And that depends on who your client is or who's installing it let's say it's a municipal building that's a public building and they're providing benefits to the public as well as themselves being the private owner of the building so the triple bottom line the first one is economic benefits then ecological benefits and social benefits and there's many categories and different ways to look at it i'll give an example of one for each ecological benefits is Habitat creation, let's say. Okay, so you're creating a space for birds, let's say a killdeer that lives on the ground on an extensive roof, you're creating a space that they can happily live with no predators. There's no way for a house cat or a bobcat or raccoon or anything, snakes, to get there and eat their eggs. Okay,
0: so as an example, of one of the roofs that I worked on and still work on, which is the Javits Center Green Roof in New York City. Yeah. They have seagulls that are right. there laying their eggs, and it can be quite dangerous uh, yes. to be up there because they will come right at your head.
1: <laughs> yes, that's why you wear hard hats on construction <laughs> yeah. site. Yeah.
0: So that would be an example of the habitat and the ecological benefit
1: of that roof. There's many other ecological benefits that come with green roofs in extensive, especially, but you know, that's just one easy example. So ecological and environmental, those are the same benefit. You can look at those in two different ways. Both of those mean helping the environment. So another one would be stormwater management. That to me is a major benefit to the environment around that Mm -hmm. particular building. And I would say is the main driver for the growth of the industry.
0: How does that work? Tell us, what what does that mean for someone
1: who doesn't know? Green roofs, if you think of them as a sponge, as a sponge that would be sitting at the side of your sink, you let it dry out for a few days. It may have some moisture left inside of there, but it's ready to soak up water. And you think of that as a shallow profile of a green roof. And then it rains and you're going to hold a good amount of water in that sponge before any water starts to drip off the bottom. Okay. So, by holding that water within the green roof, you're reducing the amount of runoff from your rooftop space that by reducing the volume of runoff, you're then reducing the velocity of water that's leaving the site and the volume of water that is hitting the stormwater uh, facility that's on site. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have a municipal stormwater system, you're reducing how much water your site is putting into that storm system. Mm -hmm. And in some communities, you get taxed on how much water you put into that system. So there's a big benefit there to help pay for it.
0: Absolutely. And I've heard in places, as an example I've heard, you can confirm this because you probably know, that in Washington, D.C., all of the rainwater that falls from the sky and comes from the rooftops goes into the treatment system and gets treated. Those drains do not empty or daylight anywhere. It actually gets treated
1: by the plants. And the reason for that is they have what's called a combined sewage overflow system, or CSO, and a CSO is a system where anything that flushes down your toilet, black and, or gray water out of a drinking fountain or a dishwasher, combines with stormwater. Then all of that goes to the same treatment plant. And that municipality pays to clean or manage all of that volume of water craziness. Yeah.
0: We know what it looks like when it rains a half an inch on all the impervious surfaces and it runs down the street and that is a ton of water.
1: And what it does, and this is something that anyone that has been to uh, New York or somewhere with a large river system, Washington, D.C. is one of them, Philadelphia. What happens with a CSO, when it rains and that system is inevitably over capacity, it dumps that untreated stormwater and sewage and black water and gray water into the nearest water body. And that's how it was done traditionally in North America. Pretty much east of the Mississippi is where you see most of the CSOs, Right, there communities. Um, I think there's about 800 of them remaining. Wow. Many cities have worked hard to disconnect and have a stormwater and a sewage pipe separate of each other. But a place like Manhattan If you've ever been there and seen when they open up the ground, it's a maze of tubes and pipes and utilities and subways, and it's next to impossible to separate it.
0: So it's really advantageous to be able to reduce the amount of rainfall that reaches the sewage system or the overflow system if we can trap it on the roof. So if I just want to come back, you were explaining it, a sponge, and if the sponge is 10% 10% wet, and you've got 90% space there, then you can capture that rainwater on the roof and prevent it from reaching the stormwater
1: system. So reducing the volume, but what you're also doing is delaying the flow off that roof. Gotcha. So that delay is also something that the city engineers are looking for in the municipality. So if it rains and your roof is fully saturated, and another raindrop hits it, it's going to take about two hours for that drop of water to make it into the stormwater system, you know, on average. Obviously, there's many variables to consider, but that two hours, all of the rainfall that hit the parking lots and non-green roofs is already gone and through the pipes. It's already blasted through and maybe got dumped into the river or went to this treatment plant. Your water is not contributing to that. Right. There's incentives in D.C. and many other municipalities to provide that volume reduction and delay. And they actually will help you pay for your green room. Wow. You know, that right there, stormwater is the biggest driver, like I said, for the growth of the
0: industry. And I'm having like an aha moment here. I'd Sorry to interrupt you, but being the sprinkler nerd and understanding some of these new technologies, and I'm immediately thinking the soil moisture sensors that I work with, there are two ways to manage a system. You can manage on dry or you can manage on wet, that it should be an immediate standard on a rooftop to always manage on dry so that that sponge if you will, the soil media up there is, if possible, always near dry so that you have available storage capacity. So if you're managing your irrigation system on an upper threshold where the soil is near field capacity all the time, you are not allowing adequate space for the rainfall. And if I'm hearing you correctly, this should be like an immediate standard with an irrigation system. It must be managed on dry threshold, which is something that can be measured and controlled so that you are prepping for a rain event to be able to maximize that storage capacity and delay that runoff.
1: Oh, most definitely. And that is the exact reason why irrigation is not used on many roofs. Because to utilize an irrigation system and fine tune it and actually be smart, which you're talking about a smart sensor, right? Right. It's like to be able to work off of a certain dry capacity, you know, you need smart sensors out there. You know, they're out there. Um, But you need to have a little bit more engineering involved. And in general, irrigation in my world has been sort of an afterthought, and it's not that smart. So with a, a smart system, it can really get dialed in. Because, you know, you want those plants to be healthy and look actually green, but you also want to maximize the holding capacity of that group.
0: Absolutely. And there's some actual uh, dollars and cents there. So I think that, and and we'll get to irrigation later Mm -hmm. on. So I kind of want to close the loop on it. But I think that if we could offline together, brainstorm and come up with the average square footage of a rooftop. In a rain event of a certain amount and what the roof can actually hold. And if the roof were full of water at the time of rain and that water came off the roof instead of being held and delayed as designed, you know, what is the value of that? Right. This isn't just about growing plants. This is also about managing that soil profile to be ready for that rain event.
1: Right. And also delivering in that same line of thinking, it's an opportunity to deliver a calculable ROI to that owner or architect or landscape architect that's trying to calculate, is, is a green roof in our budget? And the providing numbers to show the payback of this investment is critical. I'll go back to that keeping those plants green. It's critical too to have the plants that are selected for your green roof be able to transpire. So to Soak up the water and push it, you know, into water vapor. True. If you don't use a green roof professional, somebody that understands this, and and you're looking to recharge your system, open that capacity as quickly as possible, sedums are not always the best choice because they don't transpire during the day. You know, there are cam plants. They release or transpire at night. So you need to combine them. Yeah. You want a plant that's drought tolerant. That's one reason sedums are so readily used is because it's drought tolerant for the audience out there. They're like a mini cactus. They're succulent. Right. You know, so there's this fine line of like, okay, let's think about this. Let's look at all the variables.
0: Yeah, because you want that cooling effect, that transpirative cooling effect so that you don't just have a roof surface that before it was green, it was hot as hell. And after it's green, it's still hot as hell. You've only captured the stormwater capability, but not the cooling effect capability. Right. And
1: also, you know, by keeping everything green, you're capturing many things here. You're capturing the owner's attention because this roof they invested in is actually green. They want the plants to live they're investing a lot of money into making this thing green. So as a designer and an installer, it's up to me to make that client happy so their next development will have a green roof. So that's really important, but it's also really important to keep that plant healthy so that when it does rain, that whole system is transpiring as quickly as possible so the next rainfall can be held because you want to make sure that if you're saying you're going to hold X amount of volume and it's gonna be held for this long, you need to know you can do that every day. And you know, there's a factor of safety onto that. So if you say, again, hold 100,000 gallons during a two inch rainfall, you need to make sure you can do that. And if not, you know, if you get three rainfalls in three days, the smartest people in the industry are out there figuring out how to make that happen. Mm-hmm. There's a, one particular testing laboratory that is really, really doing awesome stuff to look at this back-to-back storm events. And, you know, so you engineer the soil and you select plants and you can use irrigation to fine-tune and orchestrate this system to all work mm-hmm. together. And, you know, mm-hmm. to do that and to really get something that's quantitative, you know, like how they will get you through a four week drive spell and it only turns on in Michigan, let's say four times a season and fully saturates the growing media because it hasn't rained in four weeks or barely. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's so many benefits there, you know, like because if you don't do an irrigation system and you're in a time of drought, it's going to cost the owner a lot more money to have somebody come out there with a hose and irrigate their investment.
0: Yeah. And we do hear, and people refer to an irrigation system as an insurance policy for the plants, but I think this is actually a really viable reason to call it that because it could simply be in the off position and you come up there and you turn it to auto, let it do its thing, and then you turn it back to off because it's really, like you said, that insurance policy for that drought period.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, for a passive system, you know, a lot of the systems that I install It's just off a hose bib Mm -hmm. with a, you know, battery operated controller that turns on whenever it is. But if you have a maintenance person that keeps track, okay, this building in Detroit, I should go down there and turn that irrigation system on this week. You know, so you can do that. And that's, you know, very rudimentary management. Yeah.
0: And it's also just because the soil is dry. This is where there's the sort of um, art to it, not just the science, because that soil could be dry, which could kick the sprinkler system on, i.e., with an automatic moisture driven system. But just because the soil's dry doesn't necessarily mean that the plants need it because they may be okay for a period of time in that soil condition. Right. Right. So I think Absolutely. that the art behind it is understanding the relationship between that moisture level and those plants and when to make that judgment call
1: yeah and a little bit of stress on plants is a good thing in my opinion from a horticultural sense like maybe they won't put as much energy into leaf production they might shoot their roots out a little further you know because they're stressed they're looking for water and like very basic layman terms they're searching for water so Mm -hmm. they may push their, their roots out further which makes it a more robust system And, you know, another factor that is really important to talk about is the makeup or the engineering of the soil or the growth media or growing media is critical to all of us as well. The industry debates constantly about the organic matter content of a growing media on a green roof and, you know, what types of aggregates to use and sand shapes and, you know, understanding, you know, grain size and silt versus clays content and all of these things that is very different than landscaping on the ground. Ultimately, you want a lightweight growing media. So you have to use certain products mm-hmm. to keep it lightweight. But at the same time, you have to engineer it to meet the needs of your plant or your goals for stormwater management. A way to really think of an extensive roof is it's going to typically be more of a utilitarian use it has an engineered use that's helping manage stormwater on site and it's most likely not going to be accessible to the users of that building
0: So I think we've really talked mostly about extensive lightweight soils, you know, reducing stormwater, creating a habitat. And I think, you know, as you're starting to talk about the soil media, maybe this is a good segue into perhaps the next type of green roof. So after extensive, what's the next
1: type? The next type is intensive green roofs. But I've been telling people for the last 15 years how to remember what the differences between extensive and intensive is that intensive is greater depth and it has more intense weight. Okay. So that's an easy way to remember if you're trying to determine the two types of roofs. You know, that is a common mistake to get those two mixed up. But if you're thinking about intensive, think more weight because there's greater depth. And that greater depth, provides more opportunity for larger plant material. So that's where you're going to start planting one-gallon plants up to, you know, Mm. full trees. And most of these are going to be in spaces that are user-friendly. So it's a roof deck at a corporate office where you walk out onto a pedestal paver rooftop and you have planters with what would look like normal landscaping, but it's on a roof. In intensive, you know, there's also debate out there in the industry that there's something in between intensive and extensive, and some people call it semi-intensive, but really it's just a shallow intensive roof. And to me, intensive means anything from about five or six inches up to multiple feet. It just simplifies things, it makes it easier for me to talk about that with clients that there doesn't need to be these technical differences that only a few people adopt.
0: Okay. So would it be fair to say that an intensive roof is more like landscaping on the roof?
1: Yes, most definitely. Okay. And within there, there can be, there's little uh, subcategories, you know, with a greater depth of soil, you could do a lawn. Many people do sod lawns on rooftops. It's a, you know, a lawn roof but the soil is deep enough to be considered an intensive lawn assembly. You also can grow vegetables. There's a lot of food being grown on rooftops in North America.
0: Yeah, man. I just met with Ben down at uh, Brooklyn Grange. So I I hope at some point I can have Ben on an episode and he is growing vegetables in Brooklyn, New York on rooftops. It's freaking amazing.
1: Tens of thousands of pounds too. You know, I've met Ben before and- seen him at the industry events, and he's one of the, definitely the leaders. And that's an unused rooftop, you know. That's the beauty of, of rooftops is they're everywhere, you know. <laughs> and there's many at the naval yards, for instance, you know. That's in an area that really needed jobs. You know, I don't know how it is today. I haven't been there in many years. But when I went there about a decade ago, there was not much going on. There wasn't a grocery store with felt organic, healthy food in it.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's being revitalized for sure.
1: Yeah. So like now there's food on the roof. I know there, there's somebody in the same building, I believe that's making hot sauce. Yeah, man. Ben gave me hot sauce. It's incredible. I'm like so fascinated
0: with these vegetables grown on this rooftop in Brooklyn and having hot right. sauce made from these peppers. Right. It's just so cool. Such a way to like add value to a product that you go into the grocery store and you see 50 million Bottles of hot sauce—they're all the freaking same with a different label—and then you're like, "Oh, wait a minute! This is totally di- right. product differentiation. It's local. It's grown on a yeah. rooftop. It's just—I love
1: it." There's full restaurants that are underneath the rooftop, so roof to table, and mm-hmm. you know, food is—you know—that's a, a term that I like to use when I talk about it. Is yeah, roof to table. There's also beekeepers on rooftops and. I know at Brooklyn Grange and others like it, they're doing weddings and big social events on the rooftop. So there's a lot of the, you know, a cool factor to it, but that's great. It's providing food and usable space, but it's also protecting that waterproofing membrane. And that's something we haven't talked about. It's another huge benefit to owners is putting a green roof up there, you're protecting your waterproofing membrane from UV light. Oh, so you're extending the life of your membrane by at least two, if not four lifetimes of a typical roof. And that's something that is talked about, but that is something that is very, very important to point out when you're trying to get out there and show people why this would benefit their development. And that's something that I'm really passionate about is showing these benefits and really delivering an ROI. So, you know, overall delivering this ROI is the first question out of every owner's mouth. How much do these cost? So if you can take that question and then show them, well, this is the cost, but here's your long-term savings. You know, so I will ask an owner, how long are you planning to hold this building? or are you flipping it and selling the condos? That's an important question. And then you design a system based on that answer. I'm working on one in Royal Oak right now in Michigan. The owner is looking to do a fairly large green roof. It's a condo building that I think has about 80 rental units, and they want to put their users or their renters on the rooftops, give them barbecue space and Amex and yoga spot and a dog run and all these things that historically would have never been in a development like this. And that's all that cool factor that you were saying with the intensive. They can charge more rent because they have that feature, that amenity. A lot of them put pools up there, you know, so it might be over the parking garage that would already be there. And instead of having their users look out on a hot reflective rooftop with a bunch of stones sitting there. They're out there seeing their community. They're able to meet their neighbors and that's a huge social factor. So in that particular case, you're using your green roof as a social gathering space for a condo community to where historically, if you go into a condo building without that type of space, you go and you close your door and you never really see anybody. You have an awkward hello, goodbye in the elevator and then you go and close your door. Mm-hmm. Here, you're actually forced to go and meet your community, maybe make some friends. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and that's sort of what I think the modern day apartment dweller is really looking for as well is a place for community gathering.
1: All that adds more value, meaning you can rent your units for more money and profit more off of it. I'm not scared of the word profit because you know that's what you need to show the developers they're the ones out there investing in our communities and why not incentivize them to do things that are better for the economy they're providing jobs by doing more creative projects and then they're also helping the environment by managing stormwater and providing uh, habitats for other birds and animals and everything so To go back to the membrane so they're putting all this stuff over their membrane the uv light is not able to hit that membrane it's hidden it's in the dark it's at an even temperature and the lifespan of that membrane increases like i said two to four times so if it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars at year 20 to remove that membrane throw it all in a landfill and then come back and put it all back in, you're budgeting a major amount of money during that time, that profit you're getting from renting those 80 units, you're going to have to save a lot of that to pay for your membrane in 20 years. Yeah. And with that, you know, Inhabitact has um, found a way to finance the construction of green roofs because of that saving. Okay. And that's pace financing. It's a whole nother podcast that we could maybe talk about in the future. But sure. financing green roofs is the second question after someone asks me how expensive these are. Yeah. How do I pay for it? <laughs> how do I pay for it? Is there any federal loans that I can get or whatever the question may be? But, you know, right there is a huge economic benefit of vegetated rooftops or green roofs is that that owner can save that money, either put that in their pocket, finance the next development, or pay for greener features or upgrades to existing properties. So there's overall so many benefits. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Where do you see the green roofs going in the short term in the next five years? And what do you see if you were to vision out in 25
1: years? Well, well... You can look to Europe, to Germany, and you know, to see how this market's going to go. Um, obviously, their politics is different than what we have here. But in Germany, in some regions, it's basically mandated. And that's starting to show up in the United States, uh, Denver. New York City, right? Yeah, New York. Yeah, They all have different versions of it. New York and D.C. and... Denver and San Francisco all have some version of mandate that's out there that includes green roofs. Some may be, well, you have to cover your roof in solar or green or 50% solar, 50% green. It's all a little different. We're starting to see that. Again, going back 15 years, that was a dream. Mm -hmm. You know, it started with incentives and then policy that, you know, would drive people towards green roofs. One of the leaders in the early days was Portland, Oregon. Portland was great, but they gave the same credit to every single type of technology, which, as you know, that's sort of like saying every single home that you put an irrigation system on is going to perform the same. Yeah. And it's going to drain the same all the time or hold as much water. And, you know, so the advancement of how you look at these incentive programs has been amazing and awesome because now a lot of them are performance-based. Like show me the products that you're putting up here and why or how they're going to meet the threshold of performance that you're providing. It's got to be performance because
0: if it doesn't do what you say it's going to do, you got to be able to perform to the standard that you put out there to begin with.
1: Right. So like if the city's saying, here's all this money to put a green roof in, And then they are saying, okay, that building's going to hold 50% of the yearly water hitting it. And they put that into their overall plan for their storm system in their community. But then the building only holds 10%. They're getting hit with another 40% of that site's water that they didn't plan for. So, you know, to put the requirement of like proof of performance on the manufacturer is critical in my opinion yeah, because not all green roofs are created equally is what I like to say.
0: This was good, man. We covered like so much of the green roof that, yeah, this is good because I think a lot of people listening, like I said at the beginning, understand the concept of a green roof, but may or may not have known the difference between extensive, which is shallow, lightweight, intensive, which is deeper and heavier. Can we spend time talking about water now and maybe irrigation on roofs and some of the things that you see happening out there and what you find has worked and not worked as it relates
1: to irrigation systems? So let's step back again to that when we first met. You were the first irrigation company that passed through those doors uh, 15 years ago. And Netafim is a great product. I still use it on green roofs exclusively for drip systems.
0: That's a wrap, guys. We're going to save that nugget of irrigation knowledge for the next episode and turn this into a two-part series. My intent is to try to keep each episode to roughly 45 minutes or less. And I do see here that we have about 20 to 25 minutes of irrigation talk that we're going to move to the second episode in our two-part series with Nate Griswold. So I just want to thank you all for listening. It's fun to watch the numbers increase episode by episode and month to month. It really means a lot to have you listening to the content that we are producing. And if you want to share anything, I would totally love to hear from you. As I've mentioned before, sometimes sitting here behind the mic, I speak out into the open world and I would just love to get your feedback, what you like about it, what you would like to learn more about if... You have a particular guest you think would be a good fit, or maybe if you're a professional irrigator and you've got something to share, let's talk. Maybe you should come on the show with me. I can be reached via email or LinkedIn. My email address is andyatsprinkliner.com. Please don't hesitate. Shoot me an email. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. I would just love to hear from you, where you are, what you do, or what your favorite microbeer is. Please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. So I think that's going to wrap up today, guys. And until the next episode, happy sprinkling, and we'll talk to you then.